welcome back to another episode of Midnight Delight, where we embark on a journey through time and explore the melodies of eternity. I'm Julia. And I'm Alice. We want you to sit back and relax while listening to the reflections of history. is a growing age for music. It saw the rise of many renowned artists whose names are still brought up today and whose tunes are still at the tip of our ears. At the same time, it was inevitable for music to get caught up in the societal changes. Today, we will be featuring an interview from a 1900s music expert, my dad, Peter Gardot. Without further ado, Let's get on the road. I Got Rhythm is a song from the musical Girl Crazy, played on Broadway throughout 1930 and 1931. This music was created by the children of Jewish immigrants living in New York City, George and Ira Gershwin. They were one of the most iconic brother duos of the century. George would compose intricate music while Ira would add beautiful lyrics to the tunes. Some of their most famous works together and separately include Rhapsody in Blue, Porgy and Bess Opera, and a book of lyrics on several occasions. Peter Gardot described them as, They were big in the early 20th century, doing words and music that became standards of, of the time. They were on, uh, on Broadway, in the theater, movies, um, and they the still resonate today. It hasn't gone out of style, okay? And, and even, even in modern times, in the last 20 years, you know, pop stars that are kind of over the hill have been recording, you know, these albums with standards like Rod Stewart, including songs like that, the, the, the giants in, in, the, in the world of, of, of popular music, American popular music. As famous as these brothers were, they had no idea their song, I Got Rhythm, would become one of the most influential American jazz songs of the century. Wow, that was so happy. What was the musical about? The playful musical, Girl Crazy, starred a boy named Danny who was sent to Custerville, Arizona by his father. He ordered Danny to manage the family's branch and believed that Danny should concentrate on things other than girls and alcohol. However, this is not what Danny had in mind. 
Instead, he created a dude ranch importing Broadway showgirls, which is where he finds his love interest or interests, played by Ethel Merman and Ginger Rogers. Not what I expected. Me too. An article from the New York Times describes the show as, quote, jovially airheaded, as was the fashion in those days. Something about a playboy who falls in love with a male-carrying cowgirl, and a subplot about a saloon singer from San Francisco and her low-life husband, and a side trip from Arizona to Mexico for some dallying with, quote, gay caballeros, end quote. According to Chloe Elsie from Music 365, Race, Identity, and Representation in American Music, quote, the chord progression and simple rhythm changes presented in I Got Rhythm have become second nature in the most common harmonic structure of jazz. Simon Rettner from NPR explained how many influential jazz icons in America used a similar structure to I Got Rhythm. He said, quote, This structure served as a model for many other successful jazz tunes, some say hundreds, like Duke Ellington's Cottontail, Sonny Rollins Oleo, and Nat King Cole's Straighten Up and Fly Right. So influential. Yes, however, it was not the first of its kind. From Afro-Cuban origins, the rhythm first appeared in ragtime around the 1890s, then into early jazz in the early 1900s. As influential as the song was, many people believed that it was stolen instead of inspired by jazz. As Simon Rettner from NPR also explains, quote, Remarkably, the I Got Rhythm form rivals only the blues structure as the most adapted, mimicked or ripped off depending on how you look at it. When it comes to music, it is hard to understand when music is stolen or influenced by another artist. Anyway, what did society look like during the 1930s? As the Girl Crazy musical was very popular, we cannot overlook the economic difficulties the country faced in the 1930s after the stock market crash in 1923. Broadway specifically was hit very hard, not only by the economy, but because the creators of Broadway were dying. There was fear Broadway would close. However, musicals like Girl Crazy and rising stars like Ethel Merman and her song, I Got Rhythm, brought hope to Broadway's future. Yikes, that is a lot of stress to handle. What was music like in the 1930s? Rhythm and blues were very popular in the 1930s and mostly done by black people. These songs were usually sad due to the effects the Great Depression and World War II had on people. However, there is no song more upbeat than I Got Rhythm. Even the words formulated by Ira Gershwin show satisfaction with life, which was something that very few people had at the time, and added popularity to the song. Editors from History.com explain music like I Got Rhythm, quote, encouraged people to cast aside their troubles and dance, end quote. As Herman mentions in the song,
these words reassure people that they do not need money to be happy, which was especially difficult to see during the 1930s. Under the influence of the Great Migration, the North exploded with talented black artists such as Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, and Dizzy Gillespie, and introduced a new music genre, jazz, to the heart of many Americans and later around the globe. So, was jazz like a very popular form of music in oh. like the late 20, 20th century? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, they, there was this radio program. Yeah. Uh, which was on public radio, and, and you could listen to a lot of jazz on the college radio stations, uh, where, where I did, because I, I listened to a lot of college radio back in the 80s and the 90s, and, and the public radio uh, stations. You know, there there oftentimes be exposés on, on you know, like public TV, or they have a, a concert. In Hartford, there used to be a jazz festival, and there was a club on on Maple Avenue, the 880 Club, that used to be a jazz club. But, but it's, it's, a, it's a genre of music that, that is, is uh, and it you know, really comes out of, out of uh, the, uh, the turn of the last century, you know, with, you know, with black, American black music, that's you know, where it really, really started. And, and people like Dizzy Gillespie or John Coltrane or Miles Davis, who was later, or it was big, and, and I, I, I enjoy it. Why do you think jazz was so popular? Um, not a lot of words to get in the way. <laughs> <laughs> it, I, there's a groove that goes along with it, but, but you can have one thing going on and something totally else going on, and, and, and you say to yourself, wow, that's pretty cool how, how you, could, you could put that together. And, wow. and then there's, there's the pretentious thing it's, you know, where, where people say, well, it's, it's, it's not the notes you play. It's the notes you don't play. When oh. you don't play it, does that even it's make It's like it? the art of unpredictability. It, but, boom. Yeah. <laughs> it, within a context. Mm -hmm. Within a context. After all that jazz, the next song we're going to play tonight is a piece of jazz composed by Dizzy Gillespie in 1941 called A Night in Tunisia. On this warm, breezy summer night, let's immerse ourselves in the rhythms of the night in Tunisia. Gillespie, real name John Burks Gillespie, was the lead trumpet player and musician of his time. What do you know about Dizzy Gillespie as you were growing up? Well, he was a guy, you know, a black American, and uh, and when he played, his 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 whole bottom underneath his chin, he, he just had this ability to to hold all this air in his in. You know, he like a like some sort of bubble fish, mm -hmm. okay. And and I can remember because he was still alive, I think, in the seventies, and he would be on TV, oh. like on public television. So he, you know, he was he was a jazz guy, and you know, I have some jazz music, and and he was because of the way that he looked when he played, kind of made you intrigued to to search out some, you know, more. Growing up as a poor boy in a small town in South Carolina called Chiro, 
didn't diminish his interest in music. Instead, it has made him an honorary man, quote Gillespie himself. After his father died, he and his mom moved from that small southern town to Philadelphia, where he first started playing professionally in Frankie Fairfax's band. In the late 1930s, he moved to New York to play in a variety of different bands, such as the ones led by Cab Calloway, Ella Fitzgerald, and so on. In New York, he got caught up in the Harlem Renaissance, which played the role as the breeding ground for his innovations in music. What kind of innovations? Well, no, most notably his creation of bebop, along with a few other musicians, an attempt to radicalize its predecessor known as swing music. I'm not going to go deep into the music theory stuff here, but basically bebop is faster, edgier, and less predictable. It was quite rebellious against the conventional form of jazz. How would you characterize it? It came to be called bebop. How'd it get that name? So they say that the music, you know, the music, uh, the accents actually say bebop. But you know what's more interesting is that A Night in Tunisia is characterized as safe bebop, the type that Gillespie feels comfortable playing in front of any audience. Hmm. What do you mean by safe bebop? This goes back to the origin of jazz. Coming from the era during which racism was prevalent, jazz became the kind of defense mechanism against societal plight. We're stepping into the music theory slash history water here again, but just imagine jazz as a language spoken by those very salty people at school. Gillespie, though, he played jazz with joy. As he stated that, later on, I began to recognize that I had considered Armstrong's grinning in the face of racism as his absolute refusal to let anything even anger about racism, steal the joy from his life, and erase his fantastic smile. Commenters claimed that Gillespie's music as the major patterns of change wrought by freedom were observable. Fascinating. But at the end of the day, why is it called Night in Tunisia? The full name of Tunisia is actually the Republic of Tunisia and is a country in North Africa. Funny story, this piece of, was originally named Interlude by Gillespie, but it later changed to A Night in Tunisia for its exotic tone. Exotic? Yep, this piece is actually known for its Afro-Cuban rhythms, and Gillespie also said that his tunes all had this Latin feeling after he went to Spanish Harlem after his arrival in New York. So here you can say that his music is a legacy of both, both Harlem Renaissance and the Spanish Black Harlem Renaissance. Anyways, this concept of Tunisia actually ties into the black community's role in World War II. Tunisia represented, during the war, the black soldiers' arrival on the African ground, continent of the origin of black Americans. According to the lyrics later added to this piece, quote, the moon is the same moon above you, never does it shine so bright, end quote, where stars, quote, guide you through the desert sand, end quote, and where, quote, the nights are filled with peace, end quote. This piece was a beautiful symbol of return to the roots and hope, since although black people fought alongside white people and were welcomed as heroes by liberated populations... Uh, but they were still subjected to segregation and did not receive the same honors at the end of the war. Is that right? Exactly. This actually led to the civil rights movement later this century, but that's way into the future now.
Next up, we have a song that literally all of you have heard at some point in your lives, and perhaps you have even played it to someone special. Such a sweet song. I know, right? I love it. No wonder it's the song that made the Temptations. For those of you who still need some extra information, The Temptations is a quartet consisting of five African-American singers, David Ruffin, Otis Williams, Melvin Franklin, Paul Williams, and Eddie Kendricks, called the Classic Five. They are known for their angelic voices, catchy tunes, and choreographed dances. So basically, they are the first boy band. <laughs> yeah, precisely. K-pop, bow down to the Temptations. All hail. In fact, the Temptations is referred to as the American Music Royalty for their, according to their own official website, phenomenal catalog of music and prolific career. The becoming of this song, My Girl, should thank Smokey Robinson, a member of the Miracles, which is another American vocal group, who saw the vocalist David Ruffin singing a tune by the Drifters. Impressed by his singing, Smokey came up with the tune, which later became My Girl. I mean, this song was indeed miraculous. It's really interesting how like we can now use modern technology to access like the sound of the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, before you'd have to go to the library mm-hmm. or... Or, you know, find a station. I, I can remember, you know, as, as a kid trying to, you know, is, is trying to pick up, you know, radio stations to, to find this, you know, these music. But even, even in, the, in the 70s, they had oldie stations playing stuff from the 60s. All right. So how do you think different generations tend to appreciate these, like, music, especially, like, the Temptations differently? Because, it, like, for example, My Girl is still played a lot mm-hmm. these days. Well, for for people that were growing up at the time, it, it, it reminds them of, of their growing up when they first got a radio. And it reminds them of of being young. Of good times where you didn't have to worry you didn't have to wear a a, a mask when you went out in public. <laughs> no, for me it, it it's it's you know, going to a club like Boppers. Like I said earlier, you know, these songs are a song like that is timeless. While my girl takes us back to the simpler times, I want to take some time to talk about Motown music, the music company that The Temptations was a part of. It was the first record company owned by African Americans. The Motown sound is a worldwide phenomenon beloved by millions to this day and has touched people of all races. Motown music broke down racial barriers by producing music that everyone can enjoy, such as My Girl. One of the things in the early 80s, a revival of, of Motown music uh, out. And there was a club in Hartford called Boppers. And Boppers, what they would do is it would play all this dance music from, from the 60s, which was which just chock-a-block full of, of, of Motown-type uh, music. And, you know, that, that, that music has staying power. So what do you think characterized? Well, it's, the well, Mot- the Motown sound is is you know it's it's typically uh, it was founded by Barry Gordy, um, you know, sixty years ago in Motown, which is the Motor City, 
all right? And it's, it's basically black music, black soul music. And um, yeah, so, so, you know, Motown was, was huge and made Barry Gordy into a multi-gajillionaire and made a lot of stars, but they were talented and they had a a, a groove, but, yeah. but that's that's the Detroit sound, the Motown sound. They you know black music, soul music, you know these record companies. They they crafted a sound, and they had the musicians that that could tackle it, and and it's timeless. Um, it's it's feel good music. In 1988, Barry Gordy was given the following tribute. Quote. Gordy endeavored to reach across the racial divide with music that could touch all people, regardless of the color of their skin, end quote. The tribute followed, quote, Under his tutelage, Motown became a model of black capitalism, pride and self-expression, and a repository for some of the greatest talent ever assembled at one company. After Motown, black popular music would never again be dismissed as a minority taste. Aesthetically, no less than commercially, Motown's achievements will likely remain unraveled and unstoppable. When asked about how has the Motown music changed the landscape of American music, Gardo responded, Oh, I, I think that it, it brought um, uh, black performers into, into the mainstream. There was it, put, it put, you know, um, black soul music, you'd probably call it soul music, it, it, because it wasn't, it wasn't early on. They called it, you know, race records because it was done by a different race. You know, if you go, but it was part of of the civil rights music uh, movement. And before my time, you know, I, I look at that now and I say, you know, I don't, I don't care, I don't care what color or you know where these people come from, as long as it's good music. That that's all that matters. Cultures are different than, 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 than races. This further proves the art is the language of all people. Another popular wedding song is Al Green's 1971 Let's Stay Together single. I promise you, we are not trying to create your wedding playlist here tonight. <laughs> so what was the process of making the song like? Green, a lyrical genius, created the song within 5 to 10 minutes. Although this was easy, singing the song was not. It took him around 100 takes to get the song right, and was still unsure if the song was any good. Willie Mitchell, Green's producer, had to reassure him the song, quote, had magic in it. Here is a snippet of the song. According to songfacts.com, the song almost wasn't released because Al Green hated the thin sound of his falsetto on it. Producer Willie Mitchell remembered, 
quote, the only fight I ever had with him was about let's stay together because he thought let's stay together was not a hit. Huh? I loved how his voice sounded. It is a true love song. Yes. This song became the love anthem of many Americans, being ranked 60th on the Rolling Stones list of 500 greatest songs of all time. It remained number one on Billboard Top 100 for 16 weeks and was covered by the spectacular artist Tina Turner. Here is a little bit of Tina Turner's version. Different, but beautiful. This mature song talks about how a relationship can overcome the good, bad, happy, or sad. However, he had been struggling in a relationship with his girlfriend in 1974. Mary Woodson, who was already married at the time, was upset that Green would not marry her. So one night, as Green was getting ready for bed in the bathroom, she poured a pot of boiling grits all over him leaving him with serious burns. After this incident, she took her life. Before all of this, he had been struggling between creating religious and secular music. But when his wife passed, and when he almost died falling off stage in 1976, he decided it was time to become more religious with his music. So life-changing. Yes, however, his religious beliefs did not originate from these incidents, but started with his childhood. According to his biography, quote, he began performing at a young age, singing gospel music with his family as a part of the Green Brothers, end quote. Elizabeth Blair from NPR also explained, quote, by the time he was 20, Green had already sung with his family in a gospel group, gotten kicked out of his parents' house for listening to crooner Jackie Wilson, moved in with his first girlfriend, a prostitute, and formed his own group, The Soulmates, who scored a minor hit in 1967 with Backup Train, end quote. Here is a little bit of Backup Train. from Arkansas to Michigan as a part of the Great Migration from 1916 to 1970. In Michigan, he was given singing opportunities that he wouldn't have had in the South. Many American families were extremely religious, as Green's family was, which allowed his later career of pastoring and singing to thrive. He even preached on stage. That is so unique for an artist to do, especially today. His long-lasting influence lives on in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The museum refers to him as, quote, 
one of the most gifted purveyors of soul music and, quote, the last of the greatest soul singers, end quote. Gardot remembered Green explaining. Uh, Al Green was a, uh, a black American who uh, was uh, a pop star and did really good music back in the 60s. You know, if you listen to the oldie station, the 60s station, you'll hear, you'll hear Al Green or the, even the 70s station. When his 1972 album was released, the Watergate scandal had just occurred, which is one of the biggest political scandals in our country's history. Well, what was it? The president at the time, Nixon, had five burglars from his own re-election committee break into the office of Democratic National Committee, which is located in the Watergate office building. Police did not know Nixon was involved until he had ordered the FBI to stop investigating and cover up the scandal. Yikes, that is a rough scandal. According to History.com, quote, after Watergate, many people withdrew from politics altogether. They turned instead to pop culture. Easy to do in such a trend-laden, fad-happy decade, end quote. This added to the popularity of Let's Stay Together since people were sick of politics and the song was very uniting as Al Green sings. The 1970s were not only a very musical decade, but there were also several active movements. Some included anti-war, women's rights, Native Americans, LGBTQ+, and African American movements. And others involved environmental issues that sparked the first Earth Day in 1970. Gardo agrees that music was inspired by events, politics, and even movements, explaining... Civil rights movement had a lot to do with it. You know, the Vietnam War had a lot to do with it. There was some stuff with in the 70s with uh, you know Nixon. In the in the 80s, it was everyone worried that there was you know that Ronald Reagan was going to start a nuclear war. So there was some stuff, you know, some protest music about you know, the no nukes stuff. You know, environmental stuff. Everyone hates Donald Trump. I know that there's a song that. Uh, Todd Rundgren and, and the guy from Steely Dan did, the man with a tinfoil hat. People didn't like George W. Bush and, and the war in the Middle East. But yeah, you know, environmental movement, civil rights movement. And then you have country music, which wraps itself in the flag, okay, a lot, you know. So, so it's like you have red states and blue states, I think, for a certain amount, you have red music and blue music. 
people were extremely united in fighting for such movements, regardless of the good, bad, happy, or sad events that came their way. Amazing! Some may say the song was just a typical overplayed love song. However, the influences the song had on the country is spectacular. For example, this is the theme song for a comedy show called Let's Stay Together. Popular artists like Justin Timberlake were so inspired by Al Green and the song. They did a wonderful performance together. Really learn how to sing in church. I mean, that's how I kind of feel about my voice. I played his his albums over and over again. You know, he's got such a silky voice and really, you know, a defining voice of, of R&B. To see him as a reverend and, and, and doing his thing that way. Um, it's really cool. It's really cool. It, it uh, everything kind of comes full circle. Ladies and gentlemen, Reverend Al Green. It's what I need. Obama even sang a few lyrics of the song when he spoke at the Apollo Theater in Harlem, where Al Green did many performances. And then to know that uh, Reverend Al Green was here, I'm so in love. Those guys didn't think I would do it. In more discussion with Gardot, he gives a fascinating insight into what these musical pieces were influenced by. Making money, being famous, having a good time. You know, people want to be famous and people want to make money. And, and the other thing is have a legacy. And that's what I get out of out of uh, out of those two artists. Is it's a legacy. It's 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 beautiful, um, and it, they uh, they really um, have staying power. And you can go back to a lot of this protest music, you know, of the Vietnam War and stuff like that. And and you listen to it now, and it it's dated. It doesn't mean anything. Um, but it was very topical for the day. And, and that's important to have topical music. You know, look, think of uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. You know, Ohio. You know, it was written the day after the, or the day of the, the, the killings at, at Kent State by the, by the ROTC or the National Guard. And and that song still still, you know, has staying power. The Kent State shootings occurred on May fourth, nineteen seventy. Students were protesting the expansion of the Vietnam War into neutral Cambodia. Present on campus were the National Guard and military forces who committed the shooting, causing four deaths and nine injuries. This was the first time students had been killed due to anti-war reasons in the U.S. Gardo spoke about how communities were formed around music and what is the difference between them today. 
especially in the in the early '80s, you know, when I, you know, if my friends drove, we'd go to the record store, and we just, you know, go through all the records and 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 flip through all the records, and it, it was it was kind of a hunt. And you'd ask your buddy, you'd say, "Oh, do you have this?" And he says, "Oh yeah, I have that already. You, know, you could tape it." And now, now the, the the stuff is at your fingertips. You know, back then you, there were magazines, and and you would, I would wait for the newspaper, um, the Hartford Advocate, to come out with record reviews or the Thursday newspaper, and all all that stuff has disappeared. I don't know where to find anything anymore. To tell you the truth, I don't know where to find any local news anymore because I don't want to put myself out there in social media, because um, that's where all this stuff is now. Um, but the ability to to you know start with what was on on the pop radio, go to the rock and roll stations, you know, I'd get stuff like Steve Miller Band, Led Zeppelin, and then I got into into uh, punk music, uh, which was big in the in the uh, late seventies and early eighties. It was it was fun, and and you, there's you know you can you can sit by yourself and and on the internet now and, and search for things. But having a community around you and sharing music and listening to records, reading the, the, the liner notes of a record and then finding out, oh, this guy played on this record? Oh, that's so cool. And then you would go and you'd go search out that person's stuff and uh, weave together through all these different, different groups. And, uh, and, you know, one of the big weavers for me was, uh, was Frank Zappa because he had, you know, went through, uh, he had a new lineup every, every two or three years. And to find out that oh this guy played there and he played there, which got me um, into uh, into the band Little Feet, which I really like, and and then you know there are people that played on Little Feet that did other things, and it's a big basket uh, that's that's webbed together with, with rock and roll, and I I love American rock and roll and British rock and roll and seventies pop music. I I I can't stand current day pop music, but. Uh, what one thing is interesting is that when MTV came around, that really changed a lot of of uh, the way that music was marketed and the way that music was was consumed. Gardo then talks about the gap between how different generations perceive music. You know, my father would say, you know, he'd yell upstairs, "Turn off that claptrap!" I don't hear you listening to music a lot. If you do, you have headphones on. Um, when I listened to music, it was it was with speakers and not earphones. Um, but there's definitely a generation gap because I can't stand pop music now. I think it's a bunch of crap, and I don't like when WTIC FM transferred from classical music to pop music in 1976. I listened to that. I if I listen to that station now, I I probably you know hurl. You know what of that music is is going to stay with us? And and that's that's that, you know is it going to be Beyonce or Jay Z or Adele? Uh, uh, you know, will that stuff stick around? Time will tell. Gardo further explains what creates the generational gap. The artists and what the artist is is um, providing. You know, a lot of a lot of you know, like back in the fifties, it's rebellion. You know, people started listening to Elvis Presley. All right, and it was kind of rebellious. You know, here was a here's a guy who who sounded like a black guy but wasn't, <laughs> um, and it, so there there is a racial thing back then. Um, 
you know, the Beatles had, you know, their hair, okay? The, the hippies were counterculture. You know, a lot of it has to do with, with, with you know, telling the, you know, your, your folks or the older generations, you know, screw you, I'm not going to like what you like. I'm going to rebel. But I think in, in the last 40 years, a lot of that rebellion and that kind of stuff has gone away because the music industry is, well, it's not as powerful as it used to be because they're not selling records anymore. It's all this online stuff and, and iTunes and junk like that. Um, but, you know, like the MTV stuff in the early 80s was crafted. There was no rebellion then. Rebellion was punk rock, okay? It was, uh, you know, stuff that I listened to, like the Dead Kennedys and stuff like that. And then, you know, then kind of grunge came around. And, and you know, I, I was, I'm a little older of the, of the grunge thing, but the grunge thing was, was, was to counteract the glam thing, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, the hair, hair bands of the, of the late 80s. And, and after the grunge was over, you know, I kind of lost touch with, you know, just over 20 years ago with what, what music is. But a lot of it has to do with rebellion. And like with grunge, when Nirvana came out, record labels, just anyone that had a flannel shirt on, you know, that could play a guitar, they were given a contract and they put a record out. All right. And, you know, there's a few bands that have survived. Here in Gardo's musical reflections, it is clear to see his life was extremely influenced by music. Growing up in late 20th century America has enriched him with the appreciation for the vibrant culture of different music genres, which has now grown into a heavy layer of nostalgia. There was a special community that music formed and one that grew throughout the 1900s. Living in America during this time was a truly unique experience and one that is hard to come by today. We hope you learned about how these four unique songs reflected an American's life during this decade. All of these jazzy tunes showed the influence African-Americans had on American music and reflected the events that created such empowering music. We cannot wait for you to join us for our next musical journey. But for now, we hope you rest well and feel delighted. Thank you for tuning in to Midnight Delights. And we hope to see you tomorrow at 12 a.m. sharp.